This episode is brought to you by Chevron, the human energy company. This is Politico Energy. I'm Josh Siegel. The United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP27, finished up early Sunday morning in Egypt with a historic first-of-its-kind deal. Nearly 200 countries agreed to create a global loss and damage fund, and that new separate pool of money would be collected from richer nations that have historically contributed to climate change and given to countries that have already suffered irreversible climate damage. Now, even though that part of the agreement was considered a huge win, climate advocates still weren't totally pleased, since the final text also included a nod to natural gas, a fossil fuel that's worsening climate change, and it didn't do a whole lot to tackle cutting emissions in general. So today, we caught up with Politico Europe's Carl Matheson as he was leaving the conference on Sunday about the details of the deal reached on climate payments, what more still needs to be worked out, and how climate advocates are reacting to all of it. It's Monday, November 21st. So, Carl, global climate talks at COP27 finished up on Sunday. You were there, and our reporting the conference produced a historic win as countries agreed for the first time to create a fund to pay for some countries' climate losses. So what exactly was agreed to and what remains left to resolve in actually implementing this fund? So what they agreed was to basically set up a fund for what's effectively reparations, but they don't call it reparations in climate land. They use this euphemism, which is loss and damage, and that's to do with kind of wanting to avoid language around liability for rich countries. And This has been a 30-year massive contentious issue that poor countries and vulnerable countries have really been demanding that the countries that cause climate change really pay for the damage it causes. And so they got it on the agenda on the first Sunday and that was considered a big victory. And then actually throughout the COP, the developing countries just hammered away at it and they said, this is the one thing we want to get out of this. And eventually the EU and US, who are the biggest blockers, relented. And so they got this fund and now they've got to figure out what they're going to do with it and what it looks like. So they're going to set up a transitional council with I think it's 24 countries on it, 14 developing and 10 developed. And that transitional council or committee will effectively spend a year trying to figure out what this fund is going to do, what it's for, and crucially, who's going to pay into it. Now, there were some clauses in the text that sort of lean towards a demand of the US and EU that the traditional donor base is expanded beyond rich countries and that's code for China better pay up, but also countries like Qatar and the Saudis and, and countries like that who are, have high emissions and pretty high wealth as well. Interesting. And so on the US position, how did the United States arrive at this position of actually supporting a climate fund after opposing it for so long and how sustainable is the country's support, right? I mean, they're not actually committing the funds yet. So, I mean, could a future administration pull back on this or refuse to fund it? Yeah. So we actually got a note from John Kerry's team, um, President Biden's climate envoy, and he said he welcomed the creation of the fund, but he noted that this was a voluntary funding. This is not a fund that the US apparently sees itself as obligated to pay into. 
and then he was also the language in, that he was using was also very much about expanded donor base, which is something I just mentioned. So pushing on that too. So the US has its own domestic finance issues. So they will have to have a conversation internally, but certainly they're already signaling that whatever they do do, it will be on a voluntary basis. For sure. And then there were some sticking points for climate advocates that they weren't happy about everything that came out of this COP. So for example, you reported the agreement's final text included a mention that low emission energy should be a part of the solution. So what does that reference mean and why was it added in? Yeah, there was a big surprise at the end of the two-week COP, really literally in the last, the final hour as the call to prayer, the dawn call to prayer was echoing on Sunday morning across Sharm El Sheikh. After we'd all been up all night, the presidency announced that they had new text and they just dropped it on everyone in the room and they said, okay, we're going to vote on this text. And so delegates sort of milled around for half an hour discussing it. And as they were milling around, we were reading it and we saw this language and we were running around the room and saying, hey, have you seen this? This is new. It says low emissions energy and it's asking countries to increase their use of it. Does that mean gas to you? And it was kind of only later over the next hour or so as we sort of began to unpack it, talking to NGOs, talking to other countries, that this really probably was a, an oblique reference to gas along with other low emission energy like nuclear, hydrogen, and it just came at the absolute last minute. So it's not hugely meaningful because it's not forcing any country to like ramp up their gas use or anything like that. It's kind of a suggestion and it's also only really in the text is it's saying you should do that if it's aligned with the 1.5 degree climate goal. So it's not a kind of calamitous thing, but it was surprising. And I don't think it was at the behest of countries that have fighting climate change as their number one priority. But what I think was it probably signaled was that this was actually a text that was very, very low on ambition on the kind of cutting emissions side of things. Like, so this was the thin end of the wedge. There was a lot of stuff in this text that sort of walked its way back from what we agreed in Glasgow even just 12 months ago. And the countries were a bit divided on whether they'd even managed to hold the line on where they were in Glasgow. Yeah. And to that point, the agreement included no new language on phasing down or phasing out all fossil fuels. Kind of kept the status quo on phasing down only coal from the previous COP. So how big of a setback is that to climate advocates? I think what climate advocates would say is that because climate change is progressing more and more rapidly, standing still is kind of a setback. But this COP really didn't deliver on a lot of the kind of big hopes that they wanted. They really, I mean, we're talking about language that probably maybe nods to natural gas and they wanted language that actually was, as you say, phasing down fossil fuels. So they kind of got the reverse of that. This was a developing country COP and it pushed very hard on the finance side of things. They really wanted to see money up front, money on the table. And they were very clear, the developing countries, that if that money doesn't come, then the emissions cuts won't come because they can't finance that. So frankly, the American government has been the biggest slow walker on advancing finance. So I think that context was pretty tough. And then the other thing that happened was that the developing countries 
focused in on this one thing. They wanted to get the loss and damage fund across the line and they kind of gave up on a lot of the emissions cutting language because of that. So loss and damage mitigation and and adaptation finance, so four elements, and those things were all sort of in balance. And I think in this COP, loss and damage was the big was actually the big focus. Yeah, so just kind of looking at it as a whole, I mean, how successful would you say this COP was? I think it's hard to always put a kind of success or failure rubric on these COPs, but the ultimate thing is like they got a deal. It wasn't a complete disaster. They'll come back next year and try again and push on other bits of this package. But look, let's just face it. The vulnerable countries of the world got something that they've been asking for for 30 years. I mean, for them, it's a win. And it was it was a beautiful scene, actually. There were some very emotional campaigners who've been pushing on this for a long time in the room. So a big win for them and they don't get many. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our free newsletter at politico.com slash power dash switch and subscribe to Politico Pro to read our morning energy newsletter. Some of the music in today's show was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. I'm Josh Siegel, and we'll see you back tomorrow. This episode is brought to you by Chevron, the human energy company. Did you know that Chevron is working with partners in California to convert the methane from cow waste into renewable natural gas that one day can help fuel trucks across the nation? Find out more at chevron.com slash RNG.